0: Lord Jesus, we thank you for this day. We thank you uh, for you becoming the Word, coming the Word and coming to us and opening our eyes and our hearts to you. We ask that you would do that today. and We pray, Lord, that we would learn from you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, we are in our new series uh, for uh, the beginning of the summer here uh, while we're walking through the Nicene Creed. And as we said last week in the introduction, the goal of this series is to know what we believe and why we believe it. To know what we believe and why we believe it. This was the intention of the creed itself. It was to combat heresy, all right, to combat false teachings and false beliefs. And it was to affirm our core understanding of God as given to us in the scriptures. That's what our faith is about. That's what the Bible is about. Therefore, it's what the creed is about. It's about God himself and what he has done for us. And we learned last week uh, that the main controversy that precipitated the formation of the Nicene Creed was surrounding the person of Jesus. Who exactly was Jesus? There was a lot of disagreement over him, and there still is today. And we shouldn't be surprised by this because Jesus himself told us that he would actually cause division. He made exclusive claims about himself and the people, all people in existence, have to contend with him one way or another. Isaiah prophesied as much by saying that Jesus would be a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling. And Peter and Paul both pick that up and they echo Isaiah and they explain that he's a stumbling block to the Jews and a rock of offense to the Gentiles. And Jesus himself used this language for himself. He said, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. This is not a picture of neutrality, okay? You know, Jesus is not saying, hey, man, whatever you want to believe about me is cool, okay? That's not what he's saying. He tells, every, he tells all of us, everybody is going to have to deal with him one way or another. You'll either fall on this stone, or this stone will fall on you. Either way... The stone is an issue for us, right? (laughs) Jesus is not neutral. And his claims specifically about his own nature, about his divinity, were not neutral. And that's what we learned last week, that the controversy in the church that led to the creed was really about Jesus' divinity. Was he really God? There was a large faction in the church represented by a man named Arius, That denied Jesus' divinity. They did not think he was God, but rather had been created by God. They still thought he was very important. They thought he was the most important creation. But he was still a creation nonetheless, in their view. And if you wonder, kind of give you some context on this, Jehovah's Witnesses still hold to this. This is what a Jehovah's Witness will tell you if you go down to the Ravenel Bridge and you're playing in the park and they're sitting there with their display, they're there every every time I'm there, and they want to have a conversation with you, they want to tell you and talk to you about the fact that Jesus was not God. They're Arians in that way. And so the thing that you can do after this series is take them back to the Nicene (laughs) Creed. and say you know in the nice the council of nicaea in 351 we rejected this whole idea this has been put to bed arian was refuted arianism was refuted as a heresy jesus is god that's what our creed affirms he was not created rather he is the creator okay But before we begin unpacking our section today, the section of the Creed we're going to look at today, it's the beginning of uh, the treatment of Jesus. We need to remember a movie from 1990. All right? (laughs) Obviously, you knew it was coming. Uh, So we need to be, it's a movie that starred two of the biggest stars from the 90s and the early 2000s, and one of them still today Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan. All right? It's not Sleepless in Seattle. And it's not You've Got Mail. You know, these are the ones you're probably thinking of. It's, it's way better than those, I think. And it's more significant culturally. And it's Joe versus the Volcano. You guys, you remember Joe versus the Volcano? If you haven't seen it, that's your homework this week. Go home and watch Joe versus the Volcano uh, immediately. But um, the main gist of this movie is that Tom Hanks' character, Joe, the title character. He's recruited by a wealthy industrialist to throw himself into a volcano on a South Pacific island, okay? He wants Joe to be the human sacrifice to appease this angry fire god that lived in the volcano. And this was to make the natives on this little island happy so that the industrialists can continue mining for this very rare mineral that he used. Uh, to make superconductors or something. You know, it doesn't matter. But um, So he needed someone to appease the fire god that worried the natives so that they could keep drilling there. And Joe goes along with this crazy plan because he finds out towards the beginning of the movie that he has a rare terminal disease, an incurable disease. It's very convenient. And um, in the process of the movie, he meets the wealthy man's twin daughters. Who are both played by Meg Ryan. Okay? And he obviously falls in love with one of them, and she decides to go with Joe on this crazy adventure to appease the fire god of Wapani Wu. That's the name of the island, Wapani Wu. It's a classic movie, and I won't spoil it for you, uh, so you have to go watch it, but I know you're wondering why do I bring this up? You probably wonder that every week. But um, the reason we need Joe versus the volcano is to see what life is like with an unknowable God. Okay? The idea of an unknowable God. It's easy to do what the movie does, which we love to do in our kind of advanced Western culture. You know, we say only primitive types, like natives that live on a Southern Pacific Island would worry about such things, would come up with crazy beliefs like there's a fire God that lives in the volcano. And we need to appease this god with human sacrifice, clearly. Um, We like to kind of distance ourselves and say that's just kind of nutty, primitive thinking. But the truth is, we are just like them. We're just like them. We do the exact same thing. It's just that in our culture, usually our gods are not the old natural classics. Like, you know, fire gods, or the ocean, or the sun, or what have you. Although, if you know anybody who's really into yoga, if you know anybody who's really into yoga, then you may have heard them talk about going and doing yoga at the crack of dawn down at the Breach Inlet. They're there all the time, I see them. Uh, Or, you know, at the summer solstice in New York City, where I used to live, Times Square would fill with yoga people, and they'd all be out on their mats doing yoga at the summer solstice because they were literally worshiping the sun. Oh, it still happens. Anyway. So here you go. In our advanced Western culture, we still go to Times Square and stretch on mats to worship the sun. But either way, um, point being, our gods are usually uh, the kind of more subtle ones. You know, our gods are usually our jobs or success or wealth or power or popularity and fame. Those are two huge ones now in our, you know, kind of selfie culture that we talked about a few weeks back or even people might be your little G gods. On and on, these are the gods we serve and we're often very willing to sacrifice our lives for them. You know, think about it, we work 15 hour days. You know, we work 90 hour weeks. That's, you're sacrificing your life for whatever that is. You're giving up uh, your own time. You know, never taking vacation. We're spending every waking moment on, you know, social media, trying to become an influencer or something. You know, that's the word these days. Do you want to be an influencer? Um, no. Anyhow, um, we are fine with sacrificing ourselves for these things, you know, and we're fine sacrificing relationships for this. We will we, we'll do it with our kids. We'll sacrifice our children to our gods, you know, or at least our relationships with them where we'll keep them them as busy as we are, you know, with after school programs and sports and on and on and on. This message that you've just got to keep working. You've got to be successful at all costs to the point where we barely see each other, you know, but for an hour a day and we wonder why we're all stressed out and angry and anxious, you know, and depressed. We have this subtle message that it's worth sacrificing ourselves for these gods that we serve. But it's never satisfied. All right, these unknowable gods. The natives on Wapani Wu, you know, aren't the only ones practicing this kind of religion. We do it too. And the worst part about it is that, as I said, these gods don't speak. These gods we serve, they're unknowable. We spend all our time guessing and trying and working to figure out what will appease them, you know, to, to satisfy this demand. But we never find it. It's just silence. That's all there is, silence. You know, our jobs, they don't tell us what, <coughs> you know, how to uh, perform our, our allegiance to them. You know, we come trying to worship at these altars and we just get silence. And the way we always interpret that Is just to do more. We just interpret it as, "Oh, we're not doing enough. I need to do more." Okay, we need to give more. We need to work more. It's the joke from Thirty Rock, if you remember. Thirty Rock, Jack Donaghy, played by Alec Baldwin, one of my favorite characters of all time. All right, so if you haven't watched Thirty Rock, that's your other assignment. You know, so watch Thirty Rock. But um, in the in that show. He is, thinks he's dying of a heart attack. And he's this executive of, you know, the microwave division of NBC, of course. It's hilarious, microwave division. But, um, and he thinks he's dying, and his final words as he's dying to Liz Lemon are, I should have worked more. You know? I mean, it was a perfect illustration of us. He's dying of a heart attack, and he's saying I should have worked more. Anyhow, this is what our unknowable gods do to us. And this is what makes... Jesus so unique, okay? This is why the creed spends the bulk of its time. If you look at the creed, the vast majority of, it, majority of it is about Jesus. It's because Jesus is knowable. We've heard the creed is about God, and it's specifically about the triune God, one God in three persons. We talked about that last week. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And this God of ours wants to be known primarily through God the Son. That's what the scriptures reveal to us. And that's what the the creed summarizes for us. Jesus said it himself last week in our gospel reading that no one comes to the Father except through him. The disciples needed to hear that because they were wondering how to get to the Father. and He said, because you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And that's true for us too. If we know Jesus then we know the almighty God. Jesus is God's full revelation to us. And Paul says this in our Colossians reading today. Paul says Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And the word translated here, invisible, actually uh, has a fuller meaning. It means unknowable. The God you can't see. The God you think is there, but you don't really know. You know, we try to do it by looking at nature, but we've talked about that. Your understanding of God can be very different. If you lived in India just this past week and that cyclone hit your village, your picture of God would be very different from you know, our picture of God today. He's this loving, you know, benign force of nature. So trying to know God through nature is not gonna get you the real picture. Paul tells us that we need Jesus. He is the image of the unknowable God for us. He is the image of the invisible God. That's what Jesus does. He makes God known to us. And Paul calls him the firstborn of creation. And I just said that Jesus wasn't created. That's what the Arians thought. This sounds like it's saying that Jesus was created. They interpret this passage this way. Jehovah's Witnesses would take you to this passage and say, look, he's the firstborn of creation. It's not referring to, his, uh, to where he came from in terms of his uh, existence. It's referring to his position in creation, meaning that he is the heir to God, the only heir, the son. And that means that he owns everything in creation. That's what firstborn, you know, if you remember the story of Isaac and Jacob. Excuse me, Jacob and Esau, sons of Isaac. Esau gives up his birthright to Jacob, and Jacob then becomes the firstborn, functionally, because he gets the inheritance. That's the idea here. Jesus is the one who inherits all in existence because he is God. And it makes sense when you read the rest of of the context of Colossians. Paul says that all of God's fullness Was pleased to dwell in Jesus. He says that by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and all things hold together. So the passage itself refutes any idea that Jesus was created. He is the creator. And Paul wants us to know that God, the fullness of God, dwells in him. And John, in our gospel passage, drives this home as well. If you read John 1 right next to Genesis 1, you'll see that they are paralleling each other. John is taking the creation account in, in Genesis and rewriting it through the lens of Jesus Christ. He's showing that Jesus is doing the creating, because he's God the Son. He's equal part of the Trinity with the Father and the Spirit. And John refers to him, interestingly, he calls him the Word. And the reason John does this is because he wants us to hear and to see that God is making himself known to us through Jesus. What is a word? It's something you use to communicate to somebody, right? You speak it to someone, to hear. And that's what God is doing. He's speaking to us, showing us himself through Jesus Christ. He is the word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. That's what John is telling us. And if you want to get nerdy, which we will get nerdy for a moment here, uh, the grammar, John even uses grammar to emphasize his point here. I never thought grammar was going to matter at all, right? You remember, you know, learning all your grammar back in whatever grade that was, seventh grade, sixth grade. And here John is making a point when he's using uh, the imperfect tense as he's referring to the word. And for those of you who remember grammar, The imperfect tense means that it has no beginning and no end. It's always there. It didn't start anywhere and it didn't end anywhere. So John is driving home that Jesus Christ always is. He is God. That's the tense he uses in the verbs all the way down until he gets to the part where he says the Word became flesh. That's where the tense changes. And it goes into the past tense, the aorist tense, which means it was a completed work that happened in the past. And he's saying that Jesus was God before he came to earth and he continued to be God after he came to earth. He is God. So there you go. That's your little nerdy uh, stuff for you. You can pull that out at at, uh, cocktail parties and just wow everybody. Um, John goes on here in this passage to show us that <clears throat> Jesus is actually uh, the fullness of God as well. He uses the same language that Paul uses when Paul says the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. John says, uh, we have seen his glory, glory as of the, son, the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. From his fullness we have received grace upon grace. He wants us to hear Jesus was not just partially God or, you know, temporarily God, but he was fully God, fully divine. And Isaiah does the same thing in our Old Testament passage. Isaiah makes no distinction between the Father and the Son. It's very interesting when we read this passage. When he prophesies about Jesus coming, he says, A child is born to us. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He's showing us that he and the Father are one. This is a prophecy about the coming of the Son, and he will have the title of Father as well, in an interesting way, because they they are one. They are God. Three in one. And when we look at the imagery of our creed, the language that our creed uses... Which, do we have that, Alan? Next slide. There we go. You had it? Hey, there it is. Nope. It just doesn't want to stay on there. We will get it. There it is. All right. So we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light. The creed picks up the language that John uses and the language that Isaiah uses. This image of light, that Jesus is light. What was the first thing that was said in the creation account in Genesis 1? Let there be light. Yeah, let there be light. John identifies that light as Jesus. First, he told us that Jesus is the actual word itself, the speaking of God. He's the power of God because it's with his words that he brings everything to existence. And now he's saying that Jesus is also the light the very light that happens when it's when he speaks it's the light that conquers the darkness and the Creed wants us to see this it's driving on Jesus's divinity he's the same as God of the same substance God from God light from light God is light Jesus is light and it goes on saying that Jesus was begotten not made of one being with the father Through him all things were made. And begotten simply means that he came from the Father. That's where he came from. God sent him. The Father sent the Son. But he is one being with the Father. They share the same being. They are one. Through him all things were made. We're going to see this in each person of the Trinity in the Creed. That there is a creative aspect to each one of them. That they all take part in creation because it's driving home. They are all God. All right? You're going to get tired of me saying it, but it's going to be driven into our heads, that they are all God. And it's clear from our scriptures that we looked at today, that the creeds developed from, that we believe Jesus is God. And as as I said at the beginning, this is very good news for us. We're going to return to Joe and the volcano, okay? This is really good news for us, because it means that God is knowable, all right? It shows us Jesus is showing us who God really is. We're not left with the silence of our false gods. We're not left with the silence. you know, wondering, what do they want? I don't know. We just got to keep working. We got to work harder. We got to find a new solution. You know, maybe we'll just sacrifice some guy named Joe, and that'll shut it up. I don't know. Like this is our this is the way we think. We're not left guessing how to appease an unknowable God. That's really good news, because God has made himself known to us. He's made himself known. Have you ever, been one, you, know, you ever wondered, what's God like, or what does he really think? I've asked those questions. Look at Jesus. That's the answer. I mean, that's what the Bible's telling us. If you want to know about God, and you want to know what he's about, and you want to know what he thinks about you, look at Jesus Christ. That's what he's telling us. He's saying, I'm making myself known by coming to you in the Son, the word and the light. He is the light that conquers all darkness. He is the one that comes and gives us life. And more than that, John says he gives us the right to become children of God. That's what Jesus does for us. To make us children of God the Father Not born of blood or of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Do you hear the difference there between Joe and the volcano and all our false gods, you know? All the work and the sacrifice when we're dealing with our false gods comes from us. It's all on us. It's all about our effort to appease them. But with Jesus, the one true God... He does the work. He makes the sacrifice. He is the one who does it all for us. As John says, it's from his fullness that we have received grace upon grace. He's telling us this is a gift. Our very existence is a gift. He has spoken us all into existence. Nothing was made that wasn't made through him. And what has he done? He has showered more grace upon us when we ran away, you know, when we brought darkness back in through our sin, Jesus has just given us more grace, grace upon grace. He has spoken light. That's why John reiterates everything in John 1. That's the gospel. He goes back to the very beginning and he restates the beginning because he's saying this is a new beginning. Jesus Christ is a new beginning for all of us. That the light has conquered the darkness. It's conquered the darkness of your sin, of your pain of death, the death that we all face, that that is not going to be the end of us. It's a gift for us. Isaiah says it best, I think, at the end of our reading from the Old Testament. He says, Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. That's an incredible promise. He tells us that peace will never end for us because of Jesus Christ. That's what we're always running after. That's what, you know, uh, Tom Hanks was trying to achieve for the natives on the island. Peace from the fire god. You know, we're always trying to appease something or trying to satisfy some sort of demand. Even if it just comes from within us, there's this insatiable demand That we never find any peace from because it's all about our effort. Here, the promise is that we are given peace, permanent peace, everlasting peace, because of Jesus Christ. Paul says it too. He says he's won us peace through his blood. That's the incredible news for you and for me today that we don't do it, he does it for us. Jesus, God the Son, he's the one that makes peace for us, and it never ends. And we're going to see that again and again as we continue to walk through the creed. So I encourage you today to look at him when you are in doubt, when you're afraid, when you're up against something that's too big for you, which every single one of us can relate to. Look to Jesus Christ. He is the full revelation of God for you. He is the one that came and lived for you and died for you and forgave you of all your sins so that you might have peace, so that you might have hope. Look to Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your grace, your grace upon grace. You continue to shower us with more grace every day. Thank you. Thank you that you are the word, that you are the light, that you are God. You are the one who reveals the triune God to us. Thank you. We thank you that you have done everything for us, that you have brought peace through your blood. We ask that you would keep that firmly fixed in our hearts and our minds this week. And Lord, I pray that you would use us to share that encouraging news for those who are hurting in our lives, for those who are scared that we meet, that we would point to you, because you're our hope. And I thank you that you never fail. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.